grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin verse 1. <clears throat> As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. By the way, that's my life verse right there. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives, gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. Join me as we pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for the church. I thank you for the assembled brothers and sisters. I thank you for the joy of gathering. We need to gather in person. So, Lord, we pray that you would make it so that we can. We look forward to those days. And I pray that you would give us a hunger for gathering in person. I pray that you would minister to our souls through your word. pray that our hearts would be refreshed, that, that we would love Jesus more and seek to serve one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I said it in my prayer, and I hope you believe it to be true. We ought to be thankful for the church. We, we should be thankful for the Lord of the church. There is not another gathering, another organization, another meeting that is filled with people who are so different from one another. Different sinners redeemed by one Savior held in one body and singing one song that Jesus is Lord. That's the glue that holds us together. That's the glue that makes us here at Hickory Grove one in Christ. We were at one time, every single one of us that's a believer now, we at one time were dead in our sin. We were hopeless in our sin. But because of what God has done for us in Jesus, in His perfect life, His atoning death, His resurrection, because of that, which is the gospel... Any person that's repented and believed has been made alive in Christ. Those of you here that are Christians, you watching, if you are in Christ, you're one of us. We've been brought together 
by repentance and faith in Jesus. And although we are brothers and sisters in Christ, although we are family, we are not clones of one another. We, we are siblings, but we are not twins. And even twins that might look alike will have very different ideas about life. We have our own thoughts. We have our own aspirations. We have our own feelings. We have our own personal opinions about the world, about the world that we live in, and how we should approach it. And sometimes those different opinions cause friction. This passage is given to us. You know, I never would pick this topic. It's a good thing about expository preaching. The Bible picks the topics for you and takes you through. It's not the preacher picking the topics. This passage that's been laid before us is here to help us to make sure that we can deal with the frictions and the differences that show up among us. To make sure that we can deal with them in a way that doesn't rise to the point of division. Paul writes here in this passage, chapter 14, he'll take the whole chapter and do it. He writes about Christian unity. Remember the church in Rome. This is where this is written to, hence the name, the book of Romans. The church in Rome, if Rome had all roads leading to Rome, then all people that came to Rome came from all different directions. They got there in Rome, and if many of them became Christians, they joined that church, and that church was filled with all kinds of different people. Different people with different backgrounds bring different opinions. Paul, in this passage, he identifies two different parties, two different groups. He calls them the weak and the strong. We don't know completely what was going on there, except they had opposing views, probably Opposing views on how much of the Old Testament law that came, the ceremonial law when it came to worship, how much of that had to be incorporated into how you expressed your Christian life. So what you have in Rome and that church is a Jewish minority and a Gentile majority. But each one of them, you feel it in the passage, each one of them is called to actually minister to the heart of the other. Here you have it, the Jew and the Gentile, or maybe we can contextualize it. Here you have the American church, black, brown, and white. Or, within the congregation, people born in the United States, people living in the United States that were not born in the United States. Or, you might say, single and married, older and younger Wherever you find yourself in a category, all of us here under the Lordship of Jesus, we take our place around the cross of Jesus. And as John Stott says, the church is this, this multi-ethnic reconciled community that should be heard with one heart and one mouth in gospel harmony, worshiping the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 14, here's what Paul's doing. He is addressing non-essentials. Questions that come up in the fellowship that are not to do with doctrine, but to do with non-essentials. Questions about what to eat. Questions about which days might be better than others. 
questions later on about whether or not you should actually drink wine. And he warns us in this passage to not elevate non-essential issues of custom and opinion and make those issues the test of fellowship. The flip side of this is also true. We must not marginalize fundamental theological, doctrinal, moral questions. We must make sure those things are right. The issues here in chapter 14, the issues that threaten many of us, many churches, they're issues of opinion. See the very end of verse 1, it's the word, diologizomai, opinion. And this passage, Paul is telling us how you and I can handle differences in a church without disrupting the fellowship. In fact, I would just say it like this. Under the Lordship, this is something for me to remember, for you to remember. Under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we are one. We are one. How do we maintain that oneness, that unity that Paul talks about, that Jesus prayed for, that John writes about? How do we maintain this, un this unity? I want to use the word posture. I think, that, uh, I think we need the right posture. In fact, every point I'm going to make will have the word posture in it. I'll say it like this for the first one. Number one, we need an open-handed posture. Open-handed. That seems to be what Paul is saying in verse 1. Notice what he says there in the text. He starts out, verse 1, As for the one who is weak in faith. Now, be clear here. Not weak in the saving power of the gospel. Not weak in whether or not he or she is a Christian or not but weak in the conviction of how far the faith in Jesus allows me to go or doesn't allow me to go. This is someone who is the weak in faith, is someone who is genuinely a Christian, but because of opinion or background or maybe not being discipled or possibly not maturing or not getting a full grasp on grace or maybe just because they're from a different part of the world, this person is having a problem. And so Paul is saying in this passage, this person that is genuinely a Christian has a difference of opinion, but not on something that is a top-level doctrinal issue. Look what Paul says there in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, you see what he says to do? Welcome him. Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Do you see that open-handed uh, phrase, welcome him? And not get on social media and argue back and forth. That word welcome is, is the uh, Greek word pro-slam-bano. I, I just like the phrase pro-slam. But the way it feels, you might want to pro-slam somebody, but really if you're saying that in Greek, what you're doing is you're welcoming them. Welcome is an important word. You'll see it again down in verse 3, because there in verse 3, Paul uses it to describe how God brings us into the family through Jesus. That word welcome, accept, receive. Bring them into your inner circle. To invite them into your home, to open up yourself, to, to not have a click, but to break the click, open it up so that that becomes now a welcoming circle. This is more than just putting up with uh, when you welcome somebody. This is more than just tolerating somebody. This word is the idea filled with um, 
with, with warmth and with kindness, with genuine love and real affection. This is the opposite of the church becoming a debating chamber. That's what Paul says in verse 1. You welcome them not to debate opinions. This word welcome, it's the one that uh, Jesus used. John chapter 14, verse 3, remember what Jesus said? If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again, I will take you, I will receive you, I'll bring you to myself so that where I am, that's where you may be also. Welcome. That's how Paul says you and I are to treat brothers and sisters in Jesus. This is the word, welcome, this is the word that, um, this is the word that Luke used when, remember Luke wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. Luke was with Paul at the end of the book of Acts and they were uh, traveling shipwrecked on the island of Malta. Luke writes about it in uh, Acts chapter 28 when uh, he and Paul crawled out of the ocean like wet rats. Listen to what Luke says. Acts chapter 28 verse 2. The native people showed us unusual kindness. They kindled a fire and welcomed us because it started to rain and it was cold. They took care of us. This word welcome, it's, it's the same thing Paul told Philemon. Remember the letter Philemon? The little, you can find it, it's right before Hebrews. It's not really a letter, it's just kind of a note. And, and he wrote it to Philemon. It had to do with a runaway slave named Onesimus. He put that letter in Onesimus' pocket, sent him back to Philemon. And the letter said to Philemon, you need to welcome Onesimus like he's me. Welcome. This gives you some idea of the cross. This gives you some idea of the cross-centered positive way, the, the way that you and I are to, to sit ourselves up with posture, that's the posture we must consume, the, the uncomfortable, I mean, if it were easy, anybody could do it, the uncomfortable cross-cultural reach of Christian affection. In the days ahead, now I would have picked this topic out, but the Lord is good and sovereign and directs our paths and He brings us to the passage when we need it, in the days ahead, with Christian brothers and sisters, Christian brothers and sisters that you just might disagree with, in the name of Jesus, I'm asking you to take an open-handed posture. But that's not the only thing in the passage. I think there's something else you'll find it in verses 1, 2, and 3. We need not only an open-handed posture, we need a God-centered posture. If you were doing a Bible study on this, you would break this passage up. You would, verses 1, 2, and 3 go together. It's one thought. Verses 4 through 9 is one thought. Verses 10 through 11 is one thought. Here in verses 1, 2, and 3, let me show what I mean when I say God-centered posture. Let me read it to you. I'll start in verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person, look, at, look how Paul sets two people down. It's like, okay, you got this, you got this. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who is eat let, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Here's the reason why: for God has welcomed him. You see what Paul's doing <clears throat> in this passage: the weak and the strong. That that describes two different parties, two different sides that hold opposing views 
on an opinion, not a doctrine, but an opinion on how to express and live their faith in Jesus in the most responsible way. For our context, it, it might be something like this. Those that believe you ought to be wearing masks and keep staying home for worship. One side. Those that think wearing masks, that I'm not wearing a mask and we ought to open everything up. That's another side. Now, I promise you, those two sides exist at most churches. I've heard from both equally. So think about what goes into those two opinions. And Paul addresses both sides. And he says in verse 3, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who's eating. See what he's doing? Paul is calling each side to quit criticizing the other. And at the end of the verse, he tells us why. He gives us the God-centered reason at the end of verse 3, for God has welcomed him. Some, some say right here that Paul is, is throwing down a theological bottom line. That we have no right to ever reject from our own fellowship someone whom God has accepted. Uh, the best way to calibrate <clears throat> that attitude toward other believers is to determine what is God's attitude toward that person. John Stott said that, um, that this might even be better than the golden rule. You know the golden rule that says, Do unto others that which you'd have others do unto you. That's a really good thing. To treat other people the same way that you want to be treated, it is a safer thing altogether to treat other people the way God treats them. How does God accept us? Let's, be, let's, be, let's draw a line here. God's love is unconditional. God's acceptance is not unconditional. Be careful when you hear someone say, God loves me just the way I am. God accepts me just the way I am. We might say, yes, God does love you as you are. He does not accept you as you are. The Christian gospel says that God accepts those who have repented of sin and put their faith in Jesus and what Jesus has done. That the only acceptance we have from God comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That acceptance from God is based on repentance and faith in Jesus. It is based on the finished work of the cross of Jesus. So there at the cross of Jesus, if we have all come to the cross of Jesus, that ground becomes the ground we stand on to accept brothers and sisters that are different than you. You see, we need an open-handed posture. But not only that, it's not enough just to not be a quarrelsome person. We need to make sure it is a God-centered. We are focusing on the fact that God has accepted through the gospel. God has done this. Open-handed posture, God-centered posture. I'd like to give you another thing to consider. Third way, third posture, number three. We need a grace-driven Posture, grace-driven. Christianity is a religion of grace. It is based on the fact that we believe that God has given us grace, that He saves us by grace through faith in Jesus, that we do not earn our salvation. We can't be good enough to get it. It is God's goodness. That's how we are saved, through grace 
if we are people saved by grace, we also must be people that are extending grace. I'm just asking you, from verse 4 to verse 9, can, can you and I start being people of grace, extending grace to one another? Verse 4 through 9, it's an extended argument, and it sets forth several principles that should guide us as we relate to brothers and sisters in Christ. As we relate to brothers and sisters in Christ that might live their Christianity a little different than we do. Now, I'm not talking about doctrine. I am talking about how it works itself out. Let's go through the principles. You'll find them. Let's go through them quickly. We'll start in verse 4. Here's the first First principle to live by. <clears throat> Every believer has a judge, and you're not it. That, that's what verse 4 seems to say when it comes to opinion, not doctrine. Verse 4, uh, he asked the question, who are you to pass judgment? Or he, the feel of it is actually, who do you think you are to judge the servant of somebody else, to judge the servant of Christ? Now, Let's, be, let's put a pause here. This is not saying you shouldn't call out sin. Oftentimes people will use this, this passage here and Jesus saying, Judge not, lest you be judged. They'll say, Who are you to judge me when you confront someone in sin? That, that's not what's going on here. You and I as brothers and sisters in Christ are called to keep one another accountable and to press one another on to holy living to pursuing a life that is honoring to God, we, we're supposed to do that. What Paul is talking about here is something else. This isn't a matter of doctrine. This is a matter of, verse 1, opinion. And in that regard, each believer, every Christian, is responsible to Christ, a servant of the Lord Jesus, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, accountable to Jesus. And in that regard... We don't stand in criticism. We want to point them to Jesus. Who are you, Paul says. So the first principle is, every believer has a judge and you, I'm not it. <clears throat> Let me give you a second principle to consider. It's in verse 4 as well. That is that every believer is living on grace. Every single one of us, every man and woman here that is in Jesus is is living on grace. Do you see that in verse 4? Read verse 4 again and catch the second half of it. The, the, the second half of verse 4. Let me read it to you. <clears throat> Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? All right, we dealt with that. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Now here comes the good news. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Paul is speaking about those that, that he's labeled weak in faith. And he's saying, who do you think you are to, to judge this person? It's before God that he has to answer. He rises and falls before his own master. But he finishes out with this good news. See verse 4? That he will be upheld. You ought to circle that. I, for some reason, that ministered to me this week as I was studying it. There's, there's a promise here that says, hey, you, in Jesus, you are going to make it. Here's why. Verse 4. He will be upheld. Why? Verse 4. The Lord is able. You see that word? That's dunamis. That is the word power. The Lord has the ability. He's able to make her stand. 
See, the power of the cross saved you, right? You believe that, that the power of the cross saved you. It is that same power that will sustain you. It, it is God's grace that we live by. It is God's grace that's got you this far. It's God's grace that will keep bringing you. And we stand by, by God's grace. Every believer stands by God's grace. So, every believer has a judge. You're not it. Every believer lives on grace. I'm going to give you a third principle you might apply to uh, the next coming months. Number three. Or not number three. This is not a point. This is a subpoint. Next principle. Every believer has a conscience. Conscience. Now, every, every person has a conscience. Every person, that's something God gives. Every person is a compass of right and wrong. God puts that in our hearts. But every person that is born again by the blood of Jesus, when you're no longer dead in sin, you've been made alive to Christ, that conscience in you now is being sanctified. It's being made more Christ-like. And Paul addresses that in verse 5. Paul says, okay, whether you're someone that eats or someone that abstains, whether you think one day is more important than the other, whether you drink wine or don't drink wine, Paul says in verse 5, this person should be fully convinced in his own mind. Here's what God has given us, the conscience. This is, this is, the, um, this is the mechanism that Martin Luther spoke about in the Protestant Reformation when it was sparked off and he stood before the the tribunal that wanted him to recant everything that he said he believed. And Martin Luther said he wouldn't go against the word of God. And his little dictum is to go against conscience, is your conscience, your sanctified conscience, is neither safe nor right. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. That conscience in you as a Christian is that internal mechanism that gives you the sense of right and wrong. Now, it's not infallible. Only the Bible is infallible. But it should be clear. Your conscience should be clear. Fully convinced in his own mind. Let me give you another principle to draw out of this passage. We've dealt with verse 4 and verse 5. Now let's take a look at verse 6. Every believer lives to honor Jesus. Your job, your calling in life is to honor Jesus. Do you see that in verse 6? The one who observes the day observes it to the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. The one who abstains, this is the other way, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Now, when you read verse 6, you see some repetition. Anytime you see repetition in a short order, you need to slow down and see what is all this repetition about. Three times you have honoring the Lord, two times you have giving thanks to God. One time has to do with eating. One time has to do with abstaining. And both ways can honor God. Stott, John Stott, he helped me out with the sermon a lot. John Stott says that um, <clears throat> this is one of those ways that you can help with discipleship. This provides some tools for discipleship. You can ask a couple of questions. Two questions you might want to ask when it comes up to something you're not sure what the Bible dictates you should or shouldn't do. Ask the question, can I do this and thank God for it? That's one question. When you're wondering whether or not you should say something or do something, ask the question, can I do this and thank God for it? That's one question. And maybe a more pointed question, 
Can I do this as unto the Lord? Is this, what I'm getting ready to do, is this a Christ-honoring, Jesus-exalting thing for me to say or do? Does this honor God? You see, we live our lives, according to verse 6, one of the ways we pursue this unity is we live our lives to the honor of Jesus, and we are covered with gratitude. We are thankful to God for those things He's given us. Let me give you another principle you'll find in verses 7 and 8. Those two verses go together. That is, that every believer lives and dies to Christ. Lives and dies to Christ. You see that in verse 7 and 8? When you read verse 7, it starts out sounding like uh, that whole idea, no man is an island to himself. He lives in a way he's connected to other people. But that's not really what Paul's saying here. Let me read it to you, verse 7 and 8. <clears throat> none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. You see how he said this, living, dying? It's like he put up two bookends. Your life starts living, you live your entire life, and you end up dying. And from the time you draw breath and then are redeemed by Jesus to the time you die, all of that and all points in between, we do that unto the Lord. You know what this does? Two things. This gives you purpose when some of those areas in life, when, they're, when it feels like there isn't any purpose and this gives you security in those times in life when you feel like the bottom has dropped out. For instance, that little phrase, when we live, we live to the Lord. When we die, we die to the Lord. So when you're in pain, you face depression, when you're suffering, when you are actually having a good time, when you're in your hobby, when you weep somewhere, if you're exercising, if you're going to the fifth grade, you're learning to drive. Whatever it is you find yourself doing, this verse gives every purpose to every activity until we breathe our last. One of the great things that, that happens when you get this idea, this comprehensive view of Christianity, and not compartmentalizing your Christianity, but you are letting it now infect every part of who you are. That's verse 7. Verse 8. Verse 8 gives us security. Why? Because Paul just tells you, you are the Lord's. You belong to somebody. You belong to somebody that loves you, who's purchased you by the blood of his son Jesus, who's forgiven you, who sustains you. You see how Paul ties it to the cross? Look at verse 9. He ties all of this to the cross in verse 9. He says, this is because of the gospel. You see, let me show it to you, verse 9. For to this end, to what end? Everything I've just said. To this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the living and the dead. A great principle to grip your heart, that you live your life, and one day when you die, you, you do so for the Lord. Okay, so we've, we've covered a lot of principles in, these, in this last point. Every believer has a judge, you're not it. Every believer is living on grace. Every believer has a conscience. Every believer uh, lives to honor Jesus. Every believer lives and dies to Christ. I'll just close with this one in verses 10, 11, and 12. This is a good place to close. Every believer 
is accountable to God. Every believer. You might even expand that and say every person. You see that universal principle? Paul quotes the Bible in verse 10. He says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? We will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Then he says, for it is written... And he quotes Isaiah 45, he quotes the Bible, and says there is a universal judgment coming. And that universal judgment is backed by what the Bible has said all along, that there is a day coming, the day of judgment. And that brings us down to 12, verse 12, and this universal need. See how he says it in verse 12? Verse 12 is one of those verses that like every single word should be said with capital letters. So then, you see it in verse 12? So then, the logical conclusion is each one of us, there is universal judgment. Every person that's ever lived, each of us, there is a personal judgment for you. Each one of us must give an account to God. Our account that are in Jesus, your account if you're in Jesus, is my righteousness is filthy rags. I claim the righteousness of Jesus who's taken my sins away. That is the account we'll give to God. For everyone outside of Christ, the account you have is your righteousness, which is filthy rags. Hebrews 10 tells us that it's a, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God brings us back to the gospel of grace. We are people saved by the gospel of grace, that God is holy, that we are sinners, that Christ died for sinners, that any sinner that turns from sin and puts his or her faith in Jesus is saved. I, I hope you'll commit your life to Christ. I hope for some of you that you'll yield to the call of serving in, in missions or in ministry, of giving yourself to something different than what you thought you'd be doing with your life. I hope for those of you that are hard, that you would pray that God would give you a, an open-handed, merciful heart, that you will seek unity and seek to understand. I hope that some of you will repent of that bitterness and, and with great joy welcome other brothers and sisters. I want you to live your life rejoicing in the Lordship of Jesus. God has called us to grace, to live in grace, to extend grace, to be people of grace. Join me as we pray together. Your heads bowed this morning as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment and prayer. For those of you that would like to send in electronically, you can send an email. We see all of the prayer requests. I've already gotten several this morning would welcome any of those. We do our best to make, uh, as pastors, ourselves available to you so that we might uh, pray for you, know what's going on in your life, maybe help you get to know what it means to follow Christ. We want you to live with great joy in the middle of a pretty difficult time. And that comes with grace. Father, thank you for your spirit that is so good to move in us, to fill us, Give us hearts of conviction and love for truth. Give us lives that extend grace. Father, unify your church around the gospel. Be honored here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.